Okay, guys, thank you for being here. Just set my timer. Okay. Uh, did everyone get a handout? Everyone's good? Okay. Let us uh, open up first with a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, you are so good to us. We thank you for your mercy, your generosity, your love, your patience towards us, Father. We thank you for, for giving us something such as the Lord's Supper that we can, we can dwell and, and meditate on what Christ has done for us and, and the things that he shares with us and the fact that we can remember him and, and uh, remember all that he spared us from and all that he saved us from. And as we open up this doctrine of providence today, Father, we ask that you would be with us and that you would open our hearts to receive this as a doctrine that should give us joy and should give us trust in you and to see that this is a thread that you've woven throughout the entirety of your scripture so that we can understand like a moment like Jesus Christ suffering and dying on the cross is a magnificent demonstration of your providence and that it's something that we can take joyous pleasure in the entirety of your of your merciful providence father all the ways in which you uphold the world that we can trust in you know you love you more and that we can be fulfilled edified built up strengthened by it and stand all the more firmly on our faith in jesus christ we ask all this in his name amen Last week after the service, a couple of us were discussing the Lord of the Rings novels. And it sort of came into my mind just how much that's, the idea of that sort of applies to what we're talking about today. Not necessarily the novels themselves, but the process of writing. When you look at J.R.R. Tolkien shortly after he wrote The Hobbit, in uh, 1937, he began work on a new story of The Hobbit. And it would turn into the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It turned out to take him, you know, it took him over the course of 12 years to write it. He started it in 1937. He didn't finish it until 1949. Wasn't even published until 1954. Took another number of years to go through the publishing process and the editing process. Took him a long time. And in a letter, he describes it to someone. He says, I wisely started with a map. He says, it, it helps to, to start with a map. I started with the map and made the story fit the map. He had an idea, and then he filled, filled out. He built upon that idea. And that's how you write a story. When all was said and told, the Lord of the Rings novels and The Hobbit came out to about 570,000 words, over half, over half a billion words to write the Lord of the Rings novels in 12 years of time. And writing those novels didn't just happen as an idea. He didn't just write those 500,000 words in one moment. It took time as he built that story word by word over 570,000 times, building each and every single word that would create the Lord of the Rings story. And that's what the doctrine of providence is. 
The idea is not the story. The words are. And God's providence is his unfolding story in history. So as we look at this today, we're going to look and define providence. We're going to look at the importance of providence, its purpose. And then we're going to look at some of the forms of providence. So let's look first at the definition. First, I would personally define providence as the Lord continuing his sovereign action over his creation by his unique supernatural power through both natural means and supernatural miracles. That's how I would define it. Grudem gives a more uh, thorough definition. He says that uh, God's providence, it's God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinct distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purposes. One of even more thorough definition, we could go to the 1689 LBC. It has actually seven or eight points on this board. We're just going to look at the first one where it says, God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now we could be tempted to stop right there. Those are pretty good definitions. Give you a pretty good idea about what the doctrine of providence is. But we didn't come here to listen to statements. We didn't come here to think about what I think about providence or what Grudem thinks about providence or what the LBC writers of that confession think about providence. We're here to learn what the Bible teaches about providence. Because that's the word on which we stand. We want to look at this doctrine from the biblical perspective. We want to learn to see providence in the Bible. We want to learn to then apply it as we read the Bible. And finally, we want to learn to trust in the providence of God. Because that's what the Bible is there for. It's our rule of faith. It's to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ and the God who is our Father. So we're going to look at the Bible. As I said, we've already defined uh, providence. Now we're going to look at its importance. And then we're going to look at its characters and forms. I would start looking at John chapter 5, where it says in verse 14, and this is after he, he healed the man at the Bethesda pool in John chapter 5. It says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews had a false idea what the Sabbath rest was. They seemed to think of this as an actual rest, a day where God ceased from all of his work. Jesus Christ said, no, God didn't cease from his work. He ceased from his creative work. 
his providential work, his ability to, to hold up the, the, the trees and the, the, the birds, keep them flying in the air, to keep the air beneath their wings, to keep the breath inside of Adam, to plant the garden, all those things that had life and breath and all those things that didn't have life and breath, the spinning worlds that turns throughout space, all take place because God upholds, he sustains, and he maintains these things. So from the moment that God created these things, the creative work ended. But the rest that happens on the seventh day is a symbolic rest. Ever since then, God has been working providentially. He's working in every single thing, every single molecule, every single creature, every single man. He is at work even now in this room. Everything you can see, touch, sense, and fear is God is at work in all of it. This microphone works because of God's providence. This paper, God's providence. If you have the, you know, indigestion because of the food you just ate, God's providence. It's all because of Him. It's also helpful to note that Jesus is also saying, in addition to God calling us, the, the reason that they were looking to stone Him, Jesus isn't just saying that this is God the Father's work, it's His own work. As God the Father has worked until now, I am working. Jesus Christ is providentially working in the universe which, which he created. He is equal. He shares that work with the Father because he is our creator. So it's first, a fair question to ask, is providence biblical? hoping by at least the end of the study you'll understand the answer to that question is yes. Though the word providence is not found in the Bible, much like the way the Trinity is not found in the Bible, this is something that we have to deal with systematically. We have to go throughout the entire Bible and see this, this theme reoccur of God upholding, sustaining, being in control of all things, just like we have to look through to see the Trinity, God, the Father being called Yahweh, Jesus Christ being called the Lord, the Holy Spirit being called God. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is sovereignly in control of all things, creatures, natures, nations, and the hearts of men. I'd like you to turn with me real quick to the book of Esther. You can turn to chapter 4. It's the last historical book in the Bible just before Job. If you're looking for it. I think this is one of the best places we can turn because if you look at the Old Testament, in every book of the Old Testament, the covenant name of God is used, Yahweh, with the exception of Esther. And for a long time, there was a lot of contention among scholars whether or not this book was actually scripture because it does not contain the covenant name of God. It does not say Yahweh. And in this book, we see Esther, who was a Jew. And these are the Jews that are in exile now. They're, they're being ruled under the, the king uh, Ahasuerus. And in the place where they're exiled, um, Esther is, by God's providence, finds herself a queen to king Ahasuerus. He puts his, his, his wife, Queen Ashanti, or I'm sorry, Vashti, out because she would not come to him when she was called. 
and he looks for a new queen, and he calls upon Esther, and he loves her, and he thinks he's beautiful, and he calls her as his queen. And now she's the queen in this land. And her adoptive father, Mordecai, who was actually her, her cousin, after her parents died, he adopts her as his own daughter. He becomes sort of an important man at the king's gates constantly. And there was another man there, Haman, who was also an important man who hated Mordecai because he didn't feel he was getting enough respect from Mordecai. So it was on Haman's heart to destroy Mordecai. And through his hatred of Mordecai, he actually determined to try to cause the king to destroy all of the Jews. So when he finds out about this plot, he sends a messenger to deliver a message to Esther. And we see that uh, after, he, after she receives the message, he's like, you've got to do something. This must be dealt with. Go to the king. Plead our case. And then if you look at Esther, verse 11, Esther responds, All the king's servants and, all the peop- and the people of the king promises know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So she understands there's a seriousness to this. If she comes before the king and she's not summoned. And he doesn't desire to see her there. He could sentence her to death and she could die. And she's scared. So she sends back word to, uh, back to Mordecai. She sends the messenger back. We see that in verse 12. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And these are the words to look at. Do not imagine that, in the king, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. The confidence that Mordecai has that even if Esther does not do what he feels is the right thing to talk to the king, to plead their case on their behalf, he's confident that divine providence will bring deliverance. And when you see that in these verses, this entire book screams the providence of God. The book of Esther depends on the providence of God. Without the providence of God, this book is not scripture. So when you see God working in people, when you see him allowing situations and offense to carry out as they do and open up opportunities, Mordecai is even saying that at the end of his message. He's saying, how do you not know that the providence of God has not put you in a place of royalty to specifically deal with this situation? This is all about providence. If you want a more deliberate passage, then you can turn to Matthew 10. Where it says in verse 29, Jesus Christ saying, as he's sending out his people uh, to, to evangelize, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He's saying that the, that the birds of the air exist and fly and live and breathe all by God's providence. And because God is absolutely in control of those things, you can trust that God is in control of you and he has your life in his hands. And you don't need to fear about what's going to happen to you because nothing's going to happen to you that God hasn't providentially ordained will happen to you. 
So now let's briefly look at the importance of the doctrine of providence. Right? Let's give ourselves context. I want to sort of front load this lesson with application. Usually I try to save the application forever. I try to build the case for it and then apply it. But the application is all over the Bible. The, the scriptures, there's just too many verses to go through. Providence is all throughout scripture. It's going to be too easy for me to plead my case. I'd rather you hear the application now and then apply it as you read later on. So why is this an important doctrine? Well, first of all, because it reinforces our Christian worldview. Our Christian worldview depends on God being sovereignly in control of the world. That Jesus Christ suffered and died for a purpose. It didn't just happen for no reason at all. But as God decreed something, he also caused it to happen because it always had a purpose. And that purpose is for our good. For our life in Christ, to be, to, to be made alive in Christ, God has to be working at every turn. Second, it gives us understanding about past events. When you see tragedies that happen to the Jews, when you try to understand why the Jews would be left in the, in the desert for 40 years as they all died off, right? as you try to understand why God would harden the heart of Pharaoh as he's telling him to release the Jews... And then saying, I'm going to harden your hearts so that you can't release the Jews. Well, how do you understand that? Unless you understand that God has a specific purpose for it. And he's directing all things towards that purpose. And towards that specific end. Three, importantly, it should comfort us in our current troubles. If you're dealing with stresses in your life, things that are unexpected, and you have no idea, oh, that came out of nowhere. No, it was decreed before the foundation of the earth. God always knew it was going to happen. He always knew the outcome. He always knew he was going to do it. There was never a point where he wasn't going to do it. We aren't aware of these things at this point. We don't know what God has decreed, except those things that he's revealed to us. With those things that he hasn't revealed to us, he reveals to us in time, throughout history. And as they come up, we have to understand these things have occurred because of him, that, that he's directing all things, Right? There's an election about to happen on Tuesday. It doesn't matter if you like the outcome or not. Everything's going to happen exactly how God wants it. And as we'll see later, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't act, that you shouldn't have feelings about it, that you shouldn't try to make a difference in the world or help people. But you can trust regardless of the outcome of whether or not you succeed or fail, it's not your success or failure. God always succeeds because we know that God is working all things together. Number four, it gives us a proper lens to understand the acts of sinful men and the tragic events throughout the world. Right? As you hear about, you know, look at Ukraine right now. What's been going on? What, about ten months? Who, who thought, who thought the, uh, the situation in Ukraine would last as long as it has? Where Putin invades and he's, he's dropping bombs and he's sending forces forward and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to take over that entire nation. We don't have to wonder about it. God is going to cause nations to act. He's going to cause evil men to do what evil men do, which is to seek power for themselves. Because they have no power in the life to come. They have to seek as much as they can now. And finally, it gives us a scriptural foundation for us to put our trust in the promises given to us about the future. When the Bible tells us that our life, our trials even as we die, that these things have purposes for us. When it tells us that we have 
hope in the age to come. That God has seated us currently in the heavenly places where he will reveal things to us for eternity. He will continue to reveal things to us as we go about our lives. That's something I'm grateful to put my trust in. Because I know that the, the man who has promised that to us has already kept his promises in the past. He's continuing to keep those promises in the future, in the, in the present. And we continue to keep them in the future. Because he has the power to direct things according to his will. Yes, Marvin? As we go along, it seems to me that the sovereignty of God and the providence of God can they be used interchangeably. The sovereignty of God and the providence of God? No, uh, the sovereignty is God's right to rule. God is sovereignly in control. He, is, he has the authority to rule. Providence is, act, is the actual action of, of, of his ruling. That's how I would understand it. Right? So you have, you know, you know the president has certain authorities, right? He has, a, he has, you know, presidential pardon. He has that authority. He has the presidential pardon authority. But to actually grant a pardon is a different, is, is an actual action. So providence is God continuing to act in all things, right? As God upholds this microphone and allows electricity to flow through it, that's not sovereignty. He does it as a sovereign work, but it's, it's providential that he's doing it. That he's allowing these, that he's upholding all of these things at once. Okay? Any other questions? Yes, brother. Would it, would, it, would, it be, would it be okay to say, I don't know, in words, it's how God provides? I'm sorry? Would it be okay to say that providence is how God provides, is providing for, for his people? Absolutely. That's one of the, that's one of the, the aspects of it, right? He, he provides for his people. He works in all things and he directs them towards his purpose. He provides for people as a measure of his purpose. He, you know, but he does that through what we would consider concurrent means, which we'll get into in a minute, where he'll, he'll use, if you're in need of food, right? Brother or sister here will bring you food. And that's a measure of his providence, his concurrent providence. If you're in the desert 40 years, he might drop manna from the sky. And that's his miraculous providence. So right? we have the, this, um, these boxes. Absolutely. Yeah, in, in many ways. You're, you're providing for the ministry, too. You're supporting the ministry that provides for the children. You're providing for the children themselves. There's a, there's a lot of things at work. Everything that you can name is essentially a part of God's providence. Um, so we'll, we'll get more into that in just a little bit. Okay, any other questions before I move on? No? Okay. Um, where did I... I think I missed something. So... But uh, just move on. So what is, what would we define that the doctrine of providence is not? Right? We would say that providence is certainly not deism. What is deism? That God made 
created the world and then he left it up to chance he removed himself from it. Right. You think about like a, a Newton's cradle, right? Those things with the ball clackers where you let one drop and it hits the other side and then it comes back and it swings and it just sort of takes care of itself. And every now and then you have to lift up a side again to get it going again. And that's what God does. Sets the world in motion, puts some people on it, says, take care of my garden, now get out, do your thing. No. God is at work in all things. He's, he's active in every single aspect, not just in your life, but in the, the, in the action of, of the chair that you're sitting on, in the act of the earth with, which is around you, the atmosphere that you're breathing, the stars that are aligned beyond us. God is, is, is setting everything on its proper and certain path as he's determined it should be. We would also say that the doctrine of providence is not open theism. What is open theism? Has anybody ever heard that term? Okay. It's a heresy you might come across. Well, open theism says that God doesn't have a certain knowledge of the future. That God created the world, sure, but he doesn't know how things are going to pan out. He created the world in a moment of time, and as things happen over the course of time, he has to take action, miraculous action or, or other action, in order to help guide things back on the course he wants. But ultimately, he doesn't know what choice you're going to make. Right? He didn't know Satan was going to defy him. He didn't know the angels were going to fall. He didn't know Adam and Eve were going to fall. He thought everything was going to work out fine. And then he found out, whoops, I guess I made a mistake and things are sort of falling apart. Now I've got to fix things. And Christ was his ultimate means to, to fix things. And that would be absolutely heretical. God is all-knowing, all-wise. In all control. He's, he's omnipotent. He is, he is God Almighty, the El Shaddai, as he's referred to. He has all power and knowledge. He is the source of all wisdom. Right? So, so that's definitely one of the things that providence is not. Now, Let's look at a couple of the main purposes of providence. I'm going to try to swing past these. Well, I'm going to try to just state them really quickly. So the purposes of, of providence. The first one would be the... Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, God what? God regretted. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, we, we certainly don't understand that as that God made any mistakes, but that he understood the nature of man at that point, and that man was inherently evil in all points. You know, it's, it, you'd have the same thing with people who would, would say, well, why do we pray if God isn't reacting to prayer? Well, no, we would understand prayer to be a part of God's providence, where God uses means within his creation. We'll get into that a little bit later as well. And prayer is one of those means. He uses me as a means to pray for certain people in this church. He'll use you as a means to pray for me. He'll use us to pray for other people across nations and worlds. And God will sovereignly use that, just as he did with Moses, where it said that he, he repented. 
when Moses asked him to spare them, said he repented. Well, he doesn't really change his mind. It was always in his decree that he would change his mind, that he would be, that he would be stirred up to anger against the Jews and that the prayer of Moses would s- slow that anger against them. Yes, Frank? Um, so I have two things, one thing to offer to certain commentaries on scriptures like that is not so much about like that God act, like actually regretting it as if he shouldn't have done it and more so it's showing God's disdain and hatred for sin is like the main point he's trying to get across and then the question that I have for you Anthony is how do we uphold um, something like God's providence while also um, understanding a doctrine like that's a special section we're going to get to near the end. Because we have to spend time on that one. Alright, so I promise you we'll get there. Okay. Any other questions before we move on? No? Okay. So, so the purpose of, of providence. The first purpose of providence is it's the fulfillment of the decree of God. That he determined through the counsel of his own will and revealed through his word. Right? If God declares that something's going to happen before he even creates the world, what good is it unless his providential power can actually maintain and sustain and direct all things towards that goal and towards that end? So that's one of the purposes of his providence. Second would be it's the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament as a prophetic hope and in the New Testament as a living hope manifest in the life of Christ Jesus. Right? This is the, the message that we have all come to hear. It's the message that we, it's the only message that we have. It's the message that we preach, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Right? And that message starts in Genesis chapter 3. You can even say because Jesus Christ is the creator, it starts in Genesis 1.1. Right? This message of, of God is, is, is creating a good work or creating a, a, a good world, a good universe, and then that falling into sin and then him having to make uh, a reconciling Savior, something that could, someone that could redeem his people. We see the promise of that in Genesis 3.15. That seed of the woman, that's Jesus Christ. It's exactly who that's talking about. Later they, they come to know that man as the Messiah, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then that fulfills itself in the Gospels of Jesus Christ being you know, the incarnation and coming as a, as a man, coming in the flesh, fulfilling his... his, his um, his ministry on earth, fulfilling that in his suffering, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his children. That's all part of God's providence. Three, the importance of it, the purpose of it, is that it's the preservation and benefit of his elect children who by grace have been given faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to renewed life and an eternal reward. Right? This is the good purpose for which he's working. This is that... When we say all things work together for good for, the, for, for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's to this end that we would maintain our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be preserved in faith, and that we would be blessed, regardless of whether or not we, re, we receive earthly rewards or earthly blessings, that ultimately we're going to receive blessings in the age to come as we come to know Jesus Christ and we know that our life is eternal and our life is unending and we, we, we have that living hope in Jesus Christ that, that never fails and never ends. Number four, the purpose of providence is to limit the evil deeds of men and to use them as means to fulfill good things for his elect children 
and to store up wrath for the ungodly to be dealt out in its fullness in the age to come. Right? So those that are outside of the love of God, those that, that don't believe in God, those that don't believe in Jesus Christ, those that are reprobate, those that don't have any hope of salvation because God will not save them because they are proud and they are arrogant and they are, they are haughty in their mind. They are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of judgment. And the only thing that prevents these men from acting out in the worst way possible, from seeking complete anarchy and murder and, and all kinds of defilement of, of themselves and other people, is the grace and mercy of God upon all of us. He puts governments in place for that very purpose. To stave off those that would seek to, to break rules and break laws. He puts governments in place to, to protect us from those people. And he limits them by guarding and guiding the hearts of men. Saying you can be this evil and no more. As he spoke to Satan. You can hit Job. You can kill his children. You can take his house. You can take all of his possessions. But you can't make him sick. And then he comes back and he says, okay, well now you can make him sick. You can go one step further, but you can't kill him. Even Satan is, is working within the bounds of what God will sovereignly allow him to do. So do I have any questions? Because that's essentially us. We've, I think we've, we've really sort of defined the general sense of what providence is and what, and, and what it means that providence exists in the Bible. Do I have any other questions before I move on to what the forms of it are? No? Okay. I'm just a weird person. I just put that under the bottom. All right, so. So preservation. Preservation is the first primary form. There's four we're going to look at. Preservation, concurrence, government, and miracles. Right? So the first one is preservation. We would say that that means that God maintains his creation. Uh, this is actually from Grudem, I believe. So that God maintains his creation to continually exist with its given properties according to its likeness and to continually interact with other natural things according to the created order of the universe. And that's the primary form of providence. It's preservation. And as we've said earlier, that means that God will sustain everything that he's created. Uh, Grudem makes a great point in his, in his systematic theology where he says that in Hebrews 3, it says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. And that that word upholds, it doesn't just mean that he's holding it up. I can't tell you, you know, the, on your handout, I always look for like a picture that I can put on the front to sort of, you know, sort of set the tone for the lesson a little bit. And everything I looked up on Providence all showed a set of hands holding the earth. can't tell you how many times I saw that. Sort of like an, an impersonal atlas. Not the guy holding up the earth, but just a set of hands. It's God hands. He's just holding them there. Like, oh, doesn't that look nice? And I couldn't bring myself to use it. It was horrible. Because that's not what God does. The sense of this word upholds in Hebrews 1.3 means that he's carrying it along. He's taking it somewhere. He's moving it in this particular direction. He's, he's carrying it along in time, not just at one particular point in time, but he's actually moving things and he's guiding them, sort of like a, a sculptor forming a particular piece of clay. He's, he's working on it constantly and it's not done until he says it's done. He has an image in his mind of what he's creating and he's, he's working towards that goal. 
That's what preservation is. It's the unchanging nature of things, right? Just as we saw um, you know, in our last lesson of, on science and creation, right? We said that God will continue to maintain things as they are. And that's why we actually have a basis to trust science from a Christian worldview more than science can trust it from its own worldview. Science believes that you can say that things are repeatable and observable and that you can trust them because as things happened earlier, they will happen again in the future. That's how science goes about its business. But they have to base all that off of creation just spontaneously exploding into existence out of nowhere, which is completely irrational and unprovoked. There's nothing. There's no realm of space or time. And all of a sudden, it all exists for no particular reason. And when you believe that, how can you believe that this phone will exist as a phone in 20 seconds and won't just suddenly spontaneously combust and turn into another universe somewhere? That's what science tells you that can happen. Quantum mechanics, it's a weird, weird little animal. But by our Christian worldview, we can understand that by the preser- preservation, the providential preservation of God, this phone will always be a phone. This microphone will always be a microphone. Up will always be up, down will always be down. Right? Certain colors aren't going to just mag- you know, magically change into other colors. Principles, laws aren't going to just suddenly switch on us. But because God is preserving the world in the exact way that he created it and governing it by the same laws and the same principles and the same practicalities, that it will continue to exist just as it has. And that should help us when we go out and evangelize to the lost. The next form is concurrence. We just spoke about that. That means that God tells that God is not just upholding and maintaining his creation, but he's utilizing it as a means to carry out his work. Right? I think about it in terms of, I watch, uh, I watch a lot of YouTube, probably more than I should. But there's a guy on YouTube called Primitive Technology, and he's a guy that goes out into the jungle and the woods, and he makes these little huts from scratch. And you'll see him go out into the woods, and the first thing he'll do is he'll take a giant rock and another giant rock, and he'll smash them together as hard as he can and as often as he can until one of them breaks apart. Then he'll take one of the shards of that rock, and he'll start cutting down a tree, right? A little hunk of a small tree. And then he'll take that rock, and he'll put it in the tree and create a little axe, And he'll cut down bigger trees. And he'll make another tree, a tool from one of those. And he'll start digging in the ground and in the gravel. And he'll get to the clay underneath. And he'll start taking clay. And he'll start making, uh, he'll start making like a, what is it, like a cistern or or whatever they use it, or a, a kiln. He'll make his own kiln so that he can take other clay and make dishes and spoons and pottery for this house. He'll even make shingles with it. And then he takes those axes and those tools and he'll make other tools as well. And then he starts to build the house. He builds the tools first and then he utilizes those tools to build the rest of his hut. It's beautiful. It's actually really fascinating to watch. And that's what God does. He's created the universe in a certain way to be used for a certain purpose. And now that he has the tools of the universe, he starts to use us. He uses us to carry out his good purpose. He uses us to benefit one another. Satisfy one another. Even the acts of sinful men, God will use to good effect. He uses all types of means. 
One of the most glorious, wonderful means we have is the Word of God. This is a concurrent, providential blessing from God. That he used the means of men like Paul and John and Moses to write down words that we would have centuries, millennia later, that we can put our hope and faith in and is the basis, the sole rule of faith for everything that we believe about Jesus Christ. We see God working concurrently with inanimate creation like the sun, moon, stars, rain, lightning, oceans, fire, wind, and light. We see him acting concurrently in, in animals like he does in Daniel chapter 6 when he throws Daniel into the lion's den. and prevents, he sends an angel to specifically not allow the, the lions to attack Daniel. Random acts of chance. Things that supposedly happen without any rhyme or reason. The Bible tells us that God upholds all of those things. I'm going to switch to the iPad because I have no idea what I did with this lesson. It seemed to come out one page at a time, but providentially... It did not. And I will trust in that. And I will be humble. And I will move on. That's the weirdest thing. Proverbs 16 speaks about that very thing in verse 33 where it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Things that you think are by chance or by by random pattern aren't. There's no such thing as as random in God's eyes. Just as there's no such thing as random in our eyes. Try to create a random number generator. There's whole stories on that. How It's one of the hardest things for people to do. Because everything is based on a certain code. Right? They they can't create an actual random number generator. It's all this, this, this really complicated mathematical computation that happens to try to make it seem random, but it's not. In the same way that everything that we, we see in the world and the universe seems to be really random and, and to random effect, it's not. God is making all things work together. Each and every moment in history, everything in time, God is working together. R.C. Sproul said, there's a crucial difference between providence of God and fortune, fate, or luck. None of those things exist, and in all actuality... Anything you would attribute to fortune, fate, or luck is the providence of God. The deeds of men. The deeds of men are concurrent through God. Every action that we take that affects another man is happening by the providence of God. We talked about the prayer earlier with with Moses and the people of, 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 of Israel. The same way that God used Moses to, to affect those people and to spare those people is the same thing he's doing in every single action that you do to one degree or another towards other people. Whenever you have a choice that's made one way or another, you're not just making that solely based on your own will, but because God is providentially working in you to choose that thing, you know, because he is in control. And finally, the affairs of nations. As Jesus said, you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Do not concern yourself with these things. Nothing's going to happen until God 
in his due time and due season determines that things will happen. So as you get spooked by things of the world, as you might look up your, your prophecy updates online and stuff like that, if you're one of those people that does that, and I wouldn't suggest you do that, there's a lot of people that do that because they're wondering when things are going to happen. Things are going to happen in God's time. There's no amount of information you can be given other than the second coming happening that things have come to their conclusion. The next form of uh, providence is government, which suggests that God is directing everything towards a given purpose. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times from which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. As we've already seen, Romans 8.28, we all know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's not much to say about that. As I already explained, the purpose is, is the proclamation of the gospel. We looked at those purposes, at least as far as are revealed to us, that we should be aware of, that God is preserving his elect children, that he's limiting evil in the time of in the time of the church. That he's working all things for his for his own glory. Right? And then finally we have miracles. Miracles are those special events of supernatural power where God doesn't just rely on created means to carry out his work. He'll create, he'll use it regardless of means. He'll use natural things in supernatural ways, or he'll just make things happen out of nowhere. We see that with creation. We see that in the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. We see that in the manna from heaven, as we spoke about earlier. We see that as Jonah spending three days and nights in the belly of a fish. We see that with Jesus walking on water and demonstrating his sovereign control over the universe. We see that mostly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that miraculous event where, where a man who was God, resurrected himself. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I take it up. We can remember these things. We can understand them. We can love these things about God. It says in Psalm 77, verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is, great, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Those things that God has worked out miraculously and anything that we would consider possibly a miraculous event, which some people have far too many things that they call miraculous right now, like I said, anything that God is using natural means to do is not miraculous. It's a concurrent event. Whether it's medicine, whether it's prayer, all those things are concurrent. Miraculous is one of those events where God uses this supernatural event that seems absolutely impossible for all natural reasons and makes something happen so that his purpose and his decree will be fulfilled. And if you look at it, God's providence is an all-encompassing providence. I put together a, a short list 
probably about 15 verses. I won't read them all, but it talks about God in different ways in which he acts providentially throughout the universe. Where it says in Proverbs 34, he establishes all the ends of the earth. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, it says, He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Hebrews 12.1, it says, He is the author and perfecter of faith. Hebrews 5.9, He is the source of eternal salvation. Acts 3.15, He is the author of life. 1 Corinthians 14.33, He is the God of peace. Psalm 54.4, and a similar one in Psalm 55.22, He is the sustainer of my soul. Genesis 17.1, El Shaddai, as we saw earlier, and again in Genesis 28.3 and Exodus 6.3, El Shaddai, God Almighty, all-powerful, sovereign. Revelation 1.8, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 1 Timothy 6.15, the blessed and only sovereign. Psalm 65.5, the trust of all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 40.28 and Romans 1.25, the creator. Jeremiah 2.13, the fountain of living waters. Psalm 42.8, the God of my life. Psalm 57.2, God who accomplishes all things. Psalm 68.35, himself gives strength and power. Jude 1.24, him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Ephesians 1.11, he who works all things after the counsel of his will. Isaiah 64, 8, our potter, the work of your hand. And then finally, Psalm 46, 1, a very present help in trouble. God's providence, when you start to understand these things, fitting into those categories of concurrence, government, preservation, miraculous. Providence of God is all over the Bible. It's very easy to spot once you realize it. So the question is, if God controls all things, how can our actions have real meaning? I'll put that out to you. What would you say? Yes, brother. It is as you have already said, God uses means to bring forth God is... In control of all things, including us. But God also, through his sovereign rule and providential control and his, his decree, have also decreed that we have responsibilities. Right? He put Adam and Eve on the, on the, on the, in the garden and he gave them a rule. First and first, you, know, you may eat freely of all the trees of the garden, but the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then he gives them another command. Be fruitful and multiply. He's giving them responsibilities. He told them that the second that he put Adam in the garden, he gave him the work to tend to the garden. It was his work to tend to the garden. God is creating us as means to an end, and therefore we have responsibilities. So then the question becomes, is free will a part of God's providence, or do we have free will in spite of God's providence? When it says that God twists the hearts of men, how do you take that? How do you understand that? When it says that God turned the heart of Pharaoh, that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh, did the Pharaoh have the freedom to change? 
Could he have relented? Could he have, after the very first plague go upon Egypt, or the bloodying of the waters, said, okay, you're all free to go? All right? The answer is, yeah, sister. Oh yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, Oh yeah, I would actually classify that as one of the miracles of, of Jesus Christ. You know, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing of the the man that we saw the the man who was on his bed at Bethesda, the the paralytic man who was on his bed that his friends carried down in Luke five, I think. You know, all those things are, are definitely signs of God. Water into wine. You know, stuff like that. All those miracles. Well, it's well. Water doesn't naturally turn into wine. That's absolutely a miraculous thing, right? People that are born blind don't all of a sudden gain their sight back. You know, I mean, you could say, you know, we we aren't aware, but I think that the demonstration throughout Scripture is clearly that this was supposed to be a supernatural, miraculous event. There's nothing to indicate the the fact that we're told he was born blind uh, from his youth. You know the that's meant to tell us that these, you know, if, if someone is born with sight and then has an injury that causes them to go blind, maybe you could say it's a natural healing that took place over time and that was some current, sort of concurrent thing. But this seems to be clear that Scripture is telling us that Jesus Christ miraculously healed this man. Absolutely. Even think about the woman who was, you know, who was bleeding for, for, for years and years and years. You know, if something was done to her, you might say that's concurrent means. But all she did was touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she was healed because of her faith. That's a miraculous work right there as well. So, yeah, all these things work together. Was there any other question? Yeah, brother. No, I was just going to... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about God turning the hearts of men, that they follow after their own lusts, and at the same time God is working to turn hearts of men to sway one way or the other. You talk about the, the Pharaoh's heart, you talk about, um, oh, I'm blanking on everything right now. But there's, there's plenty of places in Scripture where it says that you know, he didn't give them wisdom to see, he didn't give them knowledge he, he restrained himself from them. You know, Saul, he pulled his spirit back from Saul. Yeah. I was just going to say, Scripture will also testify that it will say God gave off mm-hmm. to the wickedness of their own minds. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard because I know we keep going over it, and it's, it's a hard thing to understand because ultimately you have to take it on faith. 
that the Bible is constantly saying that God will control and direct the hearts of men, and at the same time, you are responsible for your own actions. The Bible doesn't, doesn't have any bashfulness about that. It states that over and over and over again. And no matter what it says, it says that in every sense of the word, even though God, God is, is, is never responsible for evil, he's always in control of everything, although he's never the cause of it. He will ordain evil, he'll limit it, prevent it, direct it, he'll punish it. But from his perspective, he's always using it for good purposes. He's never the author of sin. We are the authors of sin. Men and demons are solely responsible for their own evil deeds. In Proverbs 16, we see three verses. What just happened? Proverbs 16, 1. The plans of the heart belong to men, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. One of the best examples of this is in Genesis 50, where we see Joseph confronting his brothers near the end of his life, where he says, As for you, you meant evil against me by selling me into slavery, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Yeah, you sold me into slavery. Yeah, I got tossed into prison for something I didn't do. Yeah, I had to do this, you know, this, these weird dream revelations where I had to explain people's dreams to them. And I, I even did help somebody out who, who didn't even help me out back in return for years and years. I spent years in prison and then I was given this role where I had to, to support you guys. But God meant all of it for good. Because he didn't want the Jews in the land of Canaan for that point in time. He wanted them in Egypt. Because he knew in Egypt they'd face hardship. He knew in Egypt they'd face slavery. But he also knew in Egypt they'd multiply. God had a purpose for all of that. And he brought this one man in slavery to Egypt and then rose him to a place of power so that he would be solely in a place in order to bless his family to bring them and put them in a special position within the, in the place of Egypt where they could be separated from Egypt. They wouldn't have to live among them. And they could live separately and peaceably as people of God carrying out his purpose. Wayne Grudem says, Ultimately, all will work in God's good purposes to bring glory to him and good to his people. Martin Luther says this about free will. He says, but a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. Hence it follows that free will without God's grace is not free at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself good. So let's conclude. Three things we should see from this lesson. One, that God is in control. We've seen that in many lessons, but I hope you understand the extent of God's control. That he's not just working and sort of interacting, sort of like a, an old telephone switch operator. When a call comes in, he'll connect it. But that's it. That's his one job. No, he's every single thing you can imagine. Every person you see, every object you see, the air you can't see, the, the invisible rays from the sun that you can't feel right now, all of that is being sustained and maintained by God's
perfect providential work of preservation. Second, God will provide all that we need. Just as you said earlier, right? God will provide. It's a providential work. It absolutely is. In Genesis 22, 8, when Abraham carried Isaac up to the top of the mountain, Isaac said, well, what will we do without a ram? Abraham said, the Lord will provide a lamb for us. He said, Yahweh, Ra, God will provide the ram. That word, that word Ra means to see, to provide. God will see. Don't worry. God will see. He will act. And finally, we can trust in God. Knowing that he is in absolute control, absolute power, means I don't have to worry about having power. I don't have to worry about control. It's not up to me. It's up to God. It's God's work. I can trust God. And to trust is to honor. To honor is to praise. I'll leave you with these words from Mark Dever. He said, where he said, Give your offerings, obey God's commands, sing your hymns, but the sweetest praise to God will be your trusting of him. Trusting God is your highest praise to God. That's it. Do we have any final questions before we close out here? No? Uh, Brother Frank, could you close us out in prayer? Absolutely. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the message that we have received. We pray, Lord, that as we learn these things, that we are able to meditate on them. We're able to take them and let it dwell in us richly. Allow it, allow it to change us and to conform us to the image of your Son. And let the Word of God not return void. Amen. That you carry all things to their intended destination. And in what we've learned today, that we may trust you for these things. To know that you are our good Father, our Shepherd, and that you are working out all things to the good of those who love you. We thank you for this Lord's Day, for the service, and for the lesson that we've received. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Have a great week.